proclaim God's word. Um, trying to remember exactly how it goes, but Martin Luther said something to the effect that the pulpit is the throne of God's word. And after having read that, thinking it through, and makes you feel so unworthy to stand in the pulpit and to proclaim God's word. For it indeed, it is his spoken word. Um, it's his word to his church, to his people, to have faith in him, to trust him, and to know that he has provided the way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, for our redemption from our sins. Um, I've, previously, it's been a little while, um, as I was preaching, I went, I started through Philippians and made it through maybe a couple of chapters, then I went to something else, now I'm back again. But I'm kind of regressing a little bit because I'm going to go back to chapter 1. And basically, I'm, I'm focusing on one scripture this morning, and it's Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6. Now, we know Paul, is, uh, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, He's in prison. It's one of the prison epistles. And as you can imagine, being in prison even nowadays with all the laws and the things that, you know, we, I think prisoners now in prison nowadays have it better than us working a nine to five and trying to put food on the table. But I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for the Apostle Paul. But yet he's writing to the Philippian believers, the church that he started there. Remember, he had his three missionary journeys. And, and Paul was, um, the Philippians were one of his beloved churches. Um, he's writing this letter to them to exhort them, to encourage them, and to give them thanks for all that they've done for him as they had sent him gifts and, and sent him uh, different things to to encourage him, to help him out while he was in prison. Now, if you can imagine in that day, if you were in prison, for what? Why was he in prison? Well, for something right now, we don't have to worry about um, too much here in America. In other countries we do is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how boldly did the Apostle Paul preach Jesus Christ? But we know that that Paul, formerly known as Saul, wasn't a righteous man on his own. That um, in previous times he was actually one of the actually one of the more greater persecutors of the church. Um, we know that he stood by as Stephen was being stoned and more or less gave his approval to the stoning of Stephen. And yet God moved him and made him a a follower of Christ and one that would proclaim the word throughout the entire world of that day. And so it's through that that I came to this verse, verse 6 of chapter 1 that says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So he's sure of this because Paul is firm in his faith. Um, he has no doubt. It's proven by all the things that he went through, all the hardships, persecutions, beatings, drownings almost, um, you, a snake bit, you, you name it. He, he'd been through it. And yet, Paul stood firm. And he says, and he's encouraging the Philippians to stay firm in their faith. 
And he says, for he who began a good work in you will, who is this he that he is referring to? God. Okay? Jesus Christ who began a good work in you because there's nothing good of ourselves. Um, it was mentioned in a verse someone read this morning before this time of the, of the, the service that, you know, we're, we're, we're dirty rags. We're, we're worthless without the, the Spirit of the Holy, the Holy Spirit and without the salvation, the redemption of Jesus Christ upon the cross. There's nothing good within us. So it's Jesus who did the works to complete our salvation. It's the works religion in a way, but Jesus did the works. Remember the three years in which he walked upon the earth. He was the only one who was perfect, the perfect man without sin. And then he went to the cross, the very man who was very God, and died upon the cross for our sins. And he says, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, speaking of his second coming. Um, how we look forward to that day, each and every day, as we go through these times. You know, and, I, and, I, and that's kind of what my sermon's about, but I was thinking about these times that we have and all the things going on, and, and we feel persecuted somewhat. Um, certainly not the way the Apostle Paul was persecuted. Certainly not in the way that other people in other countries around the world are being persecuted. But we are free to preach the Word of God for the most part right now. So as I, I get into this, I'm going to start out with going back a little bit in the book of Acts where Paul is on the, Saul is on the road to Damascus. Remember the bright light shone, and I'm going to kind of fly through some of this to kind of get to where I need to be. Um, and the light shines upon um, Saul, and he's blinded, and, and he hears, Paul, get, this is where he gets his marching orders. And Jesus, you know, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, um, we, we know Paul's, Saul's history before that. And so Jesus confronts him. This is going to be his conversion. This is going to be when, when Paul is, Saul returns to Paul and he's totally a converted, a transformed man. He's, he's totally a man of God. And we know that the other rest of the story is, as he is led into Damascus, which is where he was headed, and a man named Ananias was waiting on him as God had prepared God always has things prepared. There's no thing as luck or chance or happenstance. God had made this man aware of Paul's coming, and he told him what to tell Paul. And of course, Ananias, knowing who Paul was, the, the great persecutor of, of the belief, of the way of, of Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, he was very apprehensive as you and I would be as well, knowing who Saul was and the power for which he had to get done what he wanted to get done but he tells Paul he says he says he, he tells Ananias to tell to Paul that go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear Jesus's name to the world and I want to proclaim to you this morning that that's the same marching orders that he gives us back in all these years ago that now here in not 2021 but now 2022 that we are chosen vessels of his, to bear Jesus' name to the world. And we can ask ourselves, are we faithful to that calling? Well, we know Paul is a man of um, action. Paul was not a man to sit around and wait for things to come to him. 
Paul was always searching out to do God's word. What God commanded Paul to do, he did not hesitate. Um, he's straightforward. He, in, he had a, um, just a, a, a narrow focus, an intentionality, if you will, of speaking the word of Jesus Christ, of giving um, the word to the lost, to the world. So he immediately, in verse 20 of that chapter in Acts, I don't remember the chapter now about that, wrote down the verse, but you can find it, all you scholarly uh, Bible persons back there in the back row. Um, <laughs> immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So here goes this man who was just not long ago, a few days prior, going to Damascus to persecute, to throw in prison, to possibly kill, to in just a day or so to turn around and to be a preacher of Christ Jesus as the Savior of the world. That there is life in Jesus Christ. And the same is for us. If there's someone out here that out there that thinks that you're, you, you've been a sinner or that you are a sinner, you are, but that you've done something too great to be redeemed from, there's nothing in this world that you could do that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. It's just, he can cover your sins, wash away your sins, redeem you. So, so Paul is a motivated man. He's not a slothful man. And I know that's um, written in the Bible somewhere about slothfulness, about not being lazy. I don't recall, again, the exact chapter and verse, but, but we're to be about doing work. We're to be industrious. We're, we're, we're to be about going and, and working and, and doing. But in all that we do, why do we do it? For the glory of God. So it says, and I, so I begin with this, all this, because today's verse in Philippians 1.6, and I just read it to you, that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he just began a good work in Saul, now Paul. And he said that he would bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul gave his life to the ministry of preaching Jesus Christ crucified. He didn't back down from anything. Now he used common sense at times, but more often than not, he threw himself in the array of battle and the array of things, with leaving behind any apprehension, knowing that Christ crucified was the ultimate thing that he was to do and the whole purpose of why he was on the earth and why we're on the earth. So, as a way of introduction there, we'll lead in. I've noticed that over my life, one of the most difficult things that people um, have trouble with, myself included, is procrastination, uh, giving up, uh, not wanting to complete the task at hand, especially as the difficult, difficulty level rises. We have a greater chance or our thoughts swirl around those things to give in, to, to let somebody else take the reins and go forward. And that's, that's prominent throughout the Bible. Remember Moses. As God commanded Moses to do what he was supposed to do, what Moses gave it an excuse right off the bat, did he not? He said, I stutter, I can't speak. And, of course, God reminds him, I'm sending you. I'll put the words in your mouth. And Moses continues, but I'm, I, I'm not the man. I, I, I cannot, you know, I'm, I'm not a smooth talker, if you will. And so he sends his brother Aaron with him. 
and he speaks through Aaron. So Kelly, I'm going to ask you to come up and preach the rest of my sermon. <laughs> to the promised land. <laughs> but anyway, we give up. When, we, when things are hard to fix, we give up. Um, I think of I even just, just little things like, of course, I, I've taught fifth grade for many years. Uh, my wife Diane's taught third grade for many years. And there's maybe others in you in here. I know there are, Ms. Christina, that teach children day in and day out. Um, we, we know how difficult it can be. And one of the main things that I have seen the problem, the, the, the biggest problem is, it's not so much that they don't have the ability to learn. It's not that. It's the motivation. It's the motivation. What motivates you to do what you do? And that's something that I can't myself place within you, is motivation. Paul had plenty of motivation. What was his motivation? Christ Jesus. You know, when I first started teaching, I had kids that would bend over backwards, that would do whatever it would take to finish an assignment. Not because maybe they were the brightest kids in the room. Not because of maybe who their parents were or whatever it may be. But they didn't want to disappoint their teacher. They, they, they didn't want to to, to, to come to, the, to, to me or to whomever and, and disappoint them that, that they didn't do their best on an assignment. Um, and I believe that was Saul during his day. Boy, he, he, he did not want to disappoint. He, he had no shame in preaching, the Christ, preaching Jesus Christ crucified. No shame at all. And so, and, and then I think of other times of uh, hardship that we may encounter little things as we just had Christmas. Those of you that have little ones in the house, I know we just now have a little one. Uh, he's a little too little to be involved in these things, but um, if you've ever on Christmas Eve or whenever you do this, attempt to put together their toys that they have. Um, that's something that I give up on rather quickly. I, I turn it over to Diane and said, I, I, it gives me a headache here, you take it. And then a lot of times it's also, it seems like it's written in a foreign language, and actually, if you turn on the back, it is. Okay? And I actually believe I have a better chance of putting it together by reading the foreign language, or attempting to, than the English version. So, so that's one of the things that I want to point out, that Paul was a man on a mission, and, but it wasn't of Paul's own strength. I want to point that out. I want to make that clear that it was not of his own strength. Remember, go back to Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work. It was not Paul's good work. It was not of him, but it was of the Holy Spirit. It was of God, Jesus Christ, within him that accomplished what he accomplished. Without that, Paul wouldn't have done anything that he had done. He would have continued down that path. For, any, for lack of a better way of saying it, had he continued to hell, to a place of damnation. So we as believers, we should know the best option is to stay the course, to press on, to stand firm, to be diligent. Um, the Psalms speak of this throughout. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and I actually marked it. And if Abby probably can find it quicker than I can. Got it. Did I beat Abby? 
All right. That's success already. He says, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we are to be steadfast. Were you steadfast in the word of the Lord today? Or are you as a word that I came across that I wrote down, I'll probably come across it again and say it two or three times. Um, we tend to be fickle believers. Fickle. What a word. Fickle. It means we do not remain loyal to what we set out to do. We're fickle. We're like the waves of the sea. We ebb and flow. Um, the Apostle Paul did not ebb and flow. He had a one-way ticket. He had a mission to accomplish, and he did that his entire life right up into his beheading till he was put to death in prison. But the Bible gives many examples of this feeling of abandonment. So if we, we, we can't just feel all like it's just us. There's been great, much greater people in prior times that's been persecuted in ways that we can't even fathom that, that you know, made it through, that put their trust in God, but, but also stumbled along the way. You see, we're going to make mistakes. We're not perfect, not yet. That's the reason we say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so I, I think of King David. One of the first ones I thought, thought of was King David. As David had, as great as he was, a man after God's own heart, we all know the story, and we won't go into great detail about it, but Paul stumbled. And what caused this stumble, what caused this stumble to happen for Apostle Paul, Paul, King David? His pride. His pride. He had accomplished all these things. God had awarded him mightily. He was the king over the nations there, Israel, Judah. And what does he do? What does he do? He becomes complacent. He quits looking to God. I hate to say this, but it's almost akin to Nebuchadnezzar there for a little while where he almost placed himself above God's word. What did he do? He committed adultery against Bathsheba. Remember, he sends his people out to fight the war. He no longer goes and comes with the army. He stays behind, and he's walking on the rooftop at night, and he sees Bathsheba bathing in the top of another building next door, and of course he calls for her, and we know the rest. She gives birth to a child. And remember her husband, Uriah. Man, what a loyal, you couldn't find a more loyal man to King David if you tried. You know, I, I didn't even know this till I studied this for, for today, that in First Chronicles chapter 11, it says basically that Uriah was one of King David's most valiant and celebrated soldiers. I didn't know that. I just thought, you know, all this time reading through Scripture that, yes, he was in David's army, and yes, he went and did as David commanded and to his utmost ability, but think, he was one of his 30 most valiant soldiers that he had, of the vast armies that he had, one of the top 30. And yet, to cover up his sin, David had him murdered. He sent him forth, he had a plan, and by that way, that plan was written on a note that Uriah himself carried to the front lines 
to his own demise. As they countered the wall there to attack, David had the others to fall back, to leave him exposed, and he was struck down and killed. But we know that as bad as that is, and that's the reason I said earlier about no matter what sin you may have in your life that you feel is unforgivable, I mean, how much worse can it be with what King David has just done? Now, don't get me wrong. We are forgiven of our sins. We're to, we're to, to uh, confess them, and he has promised to forgive us of our sins if we confess them. But it does not mean absolutely at all that there's not going to be a consequence for our sin. There's always a consequence. We know at the very beginning that the, the, the consequence for Adam and Eve was death. And so that's how we obtained it through our head Adam, the first Adam, and in his lineage and in his line, that first Adam, that's how it pertains to us that, that, that we are sinners through Adam. Original sin, we call it. But anyway, David sought forgiveness. Remember, he gets confronted. I could go on with this story, but I don't want to get lost in it because that's not my sermon, really. <laughs> Y'all like, well, get on with it. But um, Nathan the prophet comes and approaches him, and he tells this story about the little ewe lamb and how this was um, this lady's own precious, her precious little lamb that she had raised and loved dearly with all her heart. And Nathan proceeds to tell um, King David that, you know, that, you know, this, this rich guy that basically this guy that had all that he had flocks and herds. And by the way, in that time and day, for the most part, agriculture was a sign of your wealth, along with a lot of gold and silver. But, um, but, but agriculture was a big thing then. And, and this ewe lamb was taken from this lady and, 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 and given and sacrificed. And what does King David, how does he respond? He says, surely this man deserves death. And Nathan basically in turn, and I'm probably leaving out a verse in here, I'm paraphrasing, says, King David, the man is you. The man is you. And oh, how that hits home. What did King David do after that? He mourned greatly. A lot of the Psalms, if you'll go through the Psalms, Paul has, I keep saying Paul, King David has a lot to say in the Psalms. Psalm 13 is one that I wrote down specifically. 13 verses 1 through 2. David felt abandoned. Can you imagine what it feels to be abandoned of God? especially a man of King David's stature, one placed on the throne by God himself. He says, long enough, God, you've ignored me long enough. I've looked back at, I've looked at the back of your head long enough. Long enough, I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Long enough, my arrogant enemies have looked down their noses at me. And, and sometimes I read too much into things, but I just couldn't help, I just couldn't help myself that even in this prayer, even in this uh, lament of King David's that he says, long enough, my arrogant enemies, and indeed his enemies were very arrogant, without a doubt, but it wasn't just too long ago that you couldn't be any more arrogant than King David himself. Isn't it kind of how ironic that things come back on us? 
the things that we do, God, you know, it comes full circle. We're forgiven, but there's a consequence. But always remember, going back to Philippians 1.6, that God created that good work in you. And he will complete the sanctification process through your lifetime. And when Jesus comes back for his second coming, it will be completed fully. Don't get justification and sanctification confused. Justification is a one-time thing. You become justified by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your faith in him. You're justified. That's a one-time thing. Jesus does not, we don't need to sacrifice any more animals. We don't need another temple. We don't need any more prophets. We have the Bible itself. But King David, here he is. And this is a time when King David, remember, it's actually before he became King David, actually. Um, king Saul, remember. Remember the people wanted a king? They already had a king. They had Jesus. But they begged and begged and prayed and prayed for a king. And so God gave them a king, King Saul. And of course, in the end, King Saul disobeys God's command and he replaces him with David. And Saul, being jealous of David, um, chases after him. Um, and of course, David flees, which he seems to me, I, I don't know, I, I guess I would have probably fled too. I'm sure I would have. I would have fled long before David did. I would have been out. It would have been like when... Um, Elijah, you know, when he's running down off the mountaintop ahead of the, the, the chariot there with Ahab and he outruns him. Um, that would have been me. I would have been outrunning him. I guess y'all just need to read up on King James to get that part so you laugh a little bit. Um, <laughs> next time I'll tell you what to read up on. But he feels overwhelmed and he feels helpless. But we need to remember in King David need to remember, and I know this was written in, in Romans 8, 31, but, but implied throughout all of Scripture from the start to the finish, from Genesis to the end in Revelation, that if God is for us, who can be against us? David should have taken that to heart. How many times was he supplied? How many times did God basically work miracles to, to protect him? But anyway, David runs, and he actually goes into the Philistine lands, and he goes to King Achish. And remember, he's, he's so desperate in his, in his fleeing from, from Saul that he acts, he starts acting crazy, he's drooling at the mouth, he's doing all these things to, to trick King Achish and, and, and to take him in so, so he wouldn't, would no longer be chased by King Saul. Um, sometimes I act that way when I'm at school so I can go home early. Um, hasn't worked yet. They just say that's an after effect of teaching kids all day. But nonetheless, so he says, the uh, king there, Achish, says, can't you see he's crazy? Why did you let him in here? Do you think I have en that I have enough crazy people to put up with as it is without adding another? I think Bill says that to me sometimes, I believe. No. I want you all to know, and that, just as a side note, there is not been any more an inspiration and a helpmate than, than Pastor Ben and Bill have been to me in, in serving the Lord and, and, and preaching. But when King David realized that he had been recognized, he panicked. 
He feared the worst from Achish, king of Gath. So he did all these things, and he took him in. But it wasn't just a little bit longer, though, after this that, that King David leaves this, this, this place of Gath, and he goes, and he conquers, and he becomes right with God again. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Because simply, and I won't go through the scripture, but it, because David no longer was David, he became King David. He was placed on the throne. And then this is where I use the word fickle that, you know, frequently we, we throw a guard our loyalties. We, we throw them away so easily. Now I want to turn to another example in the Old Testament, one of my favorites. And I've already mentioned him before, the prophet Elijah. And I think he's my favorite because how cool it was when he was on that mountaintop and he fixed the altar of the Lord with the wood and the, and the, and the, the sacrifice, the meat, and he put it on there and the fire consumed, come down, he prayed and fire came down and consumed his sacrifice on the altar there. Man, all those prophets of Baal and Asherah, man, how stunned they had to be when he did that. But Elijah had just had a mountaintop experience. Remember, God had put a famine on the land because of their disobedience of three and a half years of drought. We think we have it bad here, but think if no moisture of any type for three and one half years. You know, I've always said, you know, gasoline prices are going up. They're $3. I just heard the other day that they're predicting 2022, the average price across the United States is going to be over $4. Now, what that means for us locally here, I do not know. But it's a concern of ours. But if you think that's a concern, being without gasoline, how much more concerned would you be if we didn't have water? I can live without gasoline, but I can't live without water. So, so he's had a, he had this mountaintop experience in defeating the prophets of Baal at Mount Car Carmel. Remember, they set up these... Um, they had this competition, and this is when, when Elijah is bold. He is very bold in the Lord, remember, and, and he challenges. He, he, Obadiah meets him there in the wilderness, and, and King Ahab's been looking for him because, you know, they're enemies. King Ahab is a wicked king, and Elijah, God commands Elijah to go and confront Ahab, and, and he does willingly. Right off the bat, he just goes and does this, and he challenges Ahab and all of his prophets to a duel on the top of Mount Carmel. And he says, go gather all your prophets. And in overall, there were 850 of them. And then Paul ascends this mountain with these others. And then he performs this, not miracle of his own, but he prays to God. He gives God the glory. He gives God the credit. God is to show his power. It's to show who the real God is. It wasn't the prophets. It wasn't the, the gods of Baal, but it was the God of the Bible, the God that we know, who consumed the wood and the sacrifice. But then it wasn't just right after that. I mean, just, you had no King Ahab, even though he was a wicked king, and you would think that as being king, he'd have a little whatever about him, but he seems not to be too much of a man as he runs to his wife for help. Men, how many of you have married in here have done that? But he runs to this, this, and she's as wicked as he is, if not worse. And she tells, he tells Jezebel all that he's done, all that Elijah's done. And 
Jezebel responds by saying, So may the gods do to me, and more so, if I do not make the, your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she threatens Elijah's life. Now here this man has had this mountaintop experience. You and I have mountaintop experiences too. When things are going well for us, and things are, are going through, following through, and God's providing, then all of a sudden some catastrophic event happens, something happens, and we lose all our faith. We run the other way. You know, the God on the mountaintop is the same God as the God, God in the valley. He's God. So what happened to Elijah's faith in God? Why didn't Elijah stay the course, continue to listen to the counsel of God Almighty? In Joshua 23, I just, just thumbed through and found some examples of how God keeps his promises. Joshua 23, 14 says, Now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, meaning Joshua. Remember, Moses wasn't allowed to lead the people into the promised land because of his sin against God, and so it was passed on to Joshua to do it, and Joshua does what he's commanded to do even though later on it seems like all mankind, because we're, we still have a sinful heart, stumble. But he says, You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises of the Lord your God gave you has failed. Not one. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Not one. Not one single one. You can't find one that's, been, that's failed. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him... And our amen to the glory of God through us. And then finally, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You see, King David wavered. You see, Elijah wavered. Remember Gideon the prophet? He wavered. Now God still used them, didn't he? And he did many things through them, the same as us. Sometimes we waver. But what are we to do when we waver, when we kind of lose faith? What's the remedy for that? It's right here in front of you. It's God's holy word. It's through prayer. It's through fellowship amongst the saints, gathering together, bouncing things off of other people, um, having people pray for you and praying for others. So therefore, starting in the year 2022, this is the first sermon of the beginning of the year. Y'all thinking, I know what you're thinking. Boy, if this is how the year's going to start, good gracious, it might be worse than 2021. But it would be easy to look back on last year's troubles and wonder where God was, where he was at during these affairs. What, where was he during the COVID pandemic? Unemployment, the steep price of goods that we need to have to live off of, um, health care, and on and on and on. Where's God been? Well, I feel like God has done the exact opposite of abandoning, abandoning his elect. He is ready in the church for the persecution and trials to come. If you're a studier of God's word, if you've read through the Old Testament at all, you know that it's through persecution that God's word spreads. And even in the New Testament, when, when, the, when the church was persecuted the most, what happened to his word? It spread the most. So just as in Apostle Paul's day, he forewarns of the various believers, churches, the false teachers, persecutions to come. He encourages them to be strong and faithful to the Lord's promises. And he reminds them that we believers are just sojourners here. 
This is not our home. We are aliens in the fallen world waiting on the new heavens and earth to come when Jesus returns for the second advent. That's Philippians 3, 20, 21. You see, I did get past chapter 2. I went to chapter 3. How about that? So you can mark me down as chapter 3. But verse 20 in that same chapter, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Look what we have to look forward to. Our treasure is not here. Our treasure is really not now. Even though God blesses us with common grace, with things that he just blesses all people, it says rain falls on the good and the bad. God is a gracious loving God, but he is also not a God to be mocked. And whoever so mocks God, there's retribution. So I'll go back to Elijah again. Remember Elijah, and by the way, you know, God always, even through these tough times in the Old Testament, God always keeps a remnant, does he not? When he passes over, when he goes through Israel, he leads them out. The ones that got across the River Jordan, they once got to, across, got to go across, was a lot less than the ones that actually came with him from the beginning, right? So a lot, a lot of them fell away. And I encourage you not to fall away. When you start feeling that, then that means to me you need to go back and you need to look at Christ and you need to read about Christ and you need to read the Bible. You need to pray earnestly. You need to be with like-minded people. You need to be equally yoked. So the remnant lives and breathes and has its being in God alone. And that is completely and totally dependent upon God. But remember, here we have Elijah. Obadiah is, is you know, he's reminded by Obadiah that God had used him. Remember, because Elijah says, me and me alone, I'm the only one that's left. And Obadiah says, no, that's not true. He said, I had 50s. A hundred, uh, two groups of 50 in caves all this time. Now remember, here's what's hard for me. Not hard, but just, you know, it st stands out as this was a great famine among the land. Three and a half years. Remember even Elijah at the brook of Kareth, he was fed by the ravens uh, in the morning and in the evening that he drank out of the brook until it dried up and God sent him a different way. But Obadiah tells him, that he fed these prophets of God. And I'm thinking, with nothing available, how did he feed them? What did he feed them with? How did he get by with it, being he was so close or in the proximity of King Ahab all this time? God. So what constitutes the remnant of God, we can say? They are the elect from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time. They are his chosen people. Your Romans 9 speaks to that, that. You know, you can go back and read in Romans 9 how, who the church really is. He says not all of Israel is Israel. It's not a geopolitical place. It's the church spread throughout the world, believers in Christ Jesus. We are the church. And God promises even his son and this is the assurance we have going back to Philippians 1.6 that we cannot lose our salvation. 
in the Sermon on the Mount, John 17, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Well, if God's made that promise to his son and his son came down and redeemed us upon the cross, willingly suffered that horrific death and was resurrected, that surely he wouldn't lose one person, not one soul, that the Father has given to him. Man. Just a few more pages. And just as God's chosen people strayed in the days of the Old Testament prophets, God sent a person to bring them back into his fold. In the Old Testament, it usually was in the form of a prophet. Okay, in the New Testament, we have the scriptures. Okay? As God promised all through the scriptures that the first sign of this was in Genesis 3, he says his people, his chosen people, would be redeemed, would be cleaned or cleared of their sin by his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, because Bill pointed this out last week in his sermon. He read this, this scripture. I remember it plainly. He says, Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Redeemer is coming. God had already promised the Redeemer right off the bat immediately after our fall. Why are we so anxious? Why are we so worried? Surely there's things that, you know, we live life. God, we're not in a bubble. But we shouldn't be so anxious and so worried that, that, that we're going to go the way of all the rest. No, our home is not here. Remember, we're aliens here. Our home is the new heavens. But how are we to do this? Because God gives us a, command, a commandment. We're commanded to continue preaching the word irrespective of our persecution. Proclaiming the gospel is the method he chose to draw his people to himself. In fact, Romans 10, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear with someone, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, we are to preach the word to the lost. We are to preach the word to the world. Now, God has a chosen people, but you know what? I don't know who those chosen people are. Charles Spurgeon made a comment one time. He said, speaking of the elect, he said, if God had painted a yellow stripe down their back, so that everywhere I went, I knew who was of the elect. He said, I'd preach to him, but he didn't. So you preach to everyone. And I'm, I'm so thankful, you know, and this was not in my sermon, but I, I was thinking of, I've heard uh, Joshua preach, and I've heard Anthony preach, and of course, Bill and Ben, obviously, but man, that this church has been blessed particularly with younger people who love God's word. Um, in some cases have been called of God to preach the word for their lives. That, that's, that's their vocation. That's, that's what God has called them to do. Wow.
So therefore, the remnant God promises that he would pardon through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son, he will give them rest. He will remove us from our enemies. So we should not worry because God's promises are always true. So we should find comfort in what Jesus said to his disciples in John 6, 39. But I'll start with 38, verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You're in Christ. Does that mean right now as you exist that you're completely, totally from sin? Absolutely not. But we've been quickened, we've been given a new birth. The Holy Spirit resides within you. We belong to Christ. The victory has been won. Christ won that upon the cross in his resurrection. Jesus will lose none of those given to him by the Father. And now starting to finish up. Knowing the current spiritual state of the church, we can understand how this could be. In Thessalonians chapter 2, it shows that before Christ returns, there will be an apostasy, a falling away of the faith and from the truth. There goes that post-millennialism deal, some people believe. Sorry I had to throw that in there. I hope no one's post-millennium out there, by the way. Don had the car started and ready to go. Um, but anyway, things aren't getting better, folks. If you look around you, if you'll see and you'll read and you'll listen, they're not getting better. They're getting worse until the return of Christ. The current church will be vilified in the current cult by the current culture and society. The point of it, the church will actually be hated. And that's because the remnant, the true Israel, True believers will be preaching and teaching a non-compromising message from the Bible that is counter to the culture and society. It won't be a gospel prosperity. It won't be one that tickles the ears of people that come to church and want to hear a nice, polite sermon and go home and feel good about themselves. It's going to be one preaching Christ crucified, condemning you of your sins, placing, giving you faith, that you would believe in Christ Jesus and for you to go and remember he gives a command. It's a commandment, guys. It's a commandment. Go and give the word to the lost, to the world. Now, it doesn't mean he's not saying that each one of us would be called to the ministry to say like Joshua has and Ben and Bill obviously have. We all have different vocations. We all have different ways, different people that we meet and that we see and in our own way we can give the gospel to. And by the way, also some of it has to do with the way we walk, the way we speak, the things we say. A lot of times, I've had this happen in, in, in the gym before as I go all the time, and it's just tearing me down rather than bringing me up. But nonetheless, I go and, and, and people, and, and, I, and I'm far from being a pastor, but, but people ask me, do you, do you, what church do you attend? Do you, do you, do you preach? I'm like, no. But I, but I believe the Bible and I believe in Jesus Christ, and he gave me a command to give the gospel to the lost, to give the gospel to the world. And so I'm going to do that. And so the blessing of the church is that it will experience a greater presence of God and the power of God. And how is that? How do we, how do we have that within us? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. He guides us and he gives us discernment in our daily walk in this world. Remember the first century church, which was a hated minority, yet the power and presence of God accompanied its ministry 
to where this, within a generation, the whole world was evangelized. Again, going back to Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he, God, who made a good work in you, yes, in you through Jesus Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We will be fully sanctified at his, fully, at his second coming. That's when that would be complete. We're already justified, but right now we're living lives to become more like Christ Jesus, to become more like him every day. Maybe your prayer should be when you go to sleep at night, it did today, did I, did I live a life, did I pray a life, did I, what did I do to make myself or, or conform myself to be more like Jesus Christ? Am I a more giving person? By the way, one of the great qualities is, am I a loving person? Do you love your enemies as you do yourself? That's the one of the hardest ones we struggle with, I believe. And so let's get back to the Lord's calling of his church. We need to get back to the basics of the faith. And I would like to bring this back into view through looking at a group of fearless believers, the reformers of the 16th century. What is known as the Protestant Reformation, and I know there's been, we've done studies here at church, and for those that attended that, you're right well aware of what these are. Sola Scriptura is the first one, and basically it means just Scripture alone. There's no other book to add to it. There's no other prophet that's going to come that's going to add to anything. Those are false prophets, sheep in wolves clothing, Scripture alone. It's the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority of the church. You can find that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17. Remember in the Old Testament, God spoke directly to his prophets. Sometimes an angel of the Lord appeared. In the New Testament, though, we have the inspired word of God, the Bible. We have no excuse. Number two, if I can turn the page, Solus Christus. Christ alone. Christ is the only sinless man to ever live. He alone died for our sins and was resurrected in order for man to be redeemed from sin. He paid the price of death that mankind deserved. We deserve death, but yet he took upon that penalty for us. Our unrighteousness was imputed to him and his righteousness was imputed to us so that before God we appear we are holy. It's the only way. Because no sin, no unholiness can be before a holy God. And then sola fide, faith alone. It's by faith that we are justified. It's, it's, it's by faith that we believe in the Messiah, the Son of God, who propitiated the wrath of God. And Ephesians 2 will do more than enough in explaining that if you have the time. And I know you do. Because I know this for a fact. Because it... Because I feel like a lot of times I have a lot to do, but I do know this. And it's so simple. So simple. You do what you want to do. You spend your money on what you want to spend your money on. You spend your time on what you want to spend your time on. And that's just the truth of it. Then the one that I can't pronounce most of the time, Sola Gratia, I can never pronounce it just right. Did I say it correct, Pastor Ben? Close enough. I, for you, uh, MacArthur, I know there's some MacArthur fans out there. I actually listened to him say it so I could get it right. 
And if MacArthur said it, But it means that not any of the traditions, traditions or works of man can bring you to Christ. It's by grace alone. It was given to you. Well, I, I skipped over. I should go back to faith. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. Ephesians 2 and then the last one, the, the Soli Gratia. There's no tradition of works of man that can get you into heaven. Okay, and then Soli Deo Gloria. The glory to God alone. Why all of this? Why the creation of man for? Why is that? Why were we created in the first place? Why are you here today? Why do you even exist? Since we're so evil, why don't he just, as he did in the times of Noah, just, just start over? Well, God, one thing, promised not to do that again. And it's a quite simple answer. It's for the glory of God. Romans 11, 33 through 36. And I want to end with this, this scripture, and I'll be done. 2 Timothy 3. And Abby, you can put this on the screen if you will. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all through Christ Jesus. He equips us. He makes us complete. As Philippians 1, 6 says, he's the one that sanctifies us. We are sanctified and through the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is our ultimate authority. It's not the Pope or someone exalted to be the leader or either a religion or cult. Nor is it the ultimate authority of the church. Nor is it the traditions of the church or church councils, or church elders, or anything else. The ultimate authority is God himself. Amen.